This is Top Landing Gear. Welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and to part one of our full-length interview with Tony Hoskins, who's restoring a rare photo-reconnaissance Spitfire PR4 to full flight. Back in 2018, Tony and his team recovered the wreckage of Spitfire AA810 from a mountainside in Norway, where it had laid undisturbed for 76 years, having been shot down while on a mission to photograph the German battleship Tirpitz. Its pilot, Sandy Gunn, bailed out, but was later captured and sent to Stalagluft III to become one of those immortalised in the Great Escape. Tony's aim is that 810 should be a flying memorial to the men and women of the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit during World War II, and as well as restoring the aircraft, is campaigning to have a permanent monument to the PRU erected in London. We visited Tony at airframe assemblies on the Isle of Wight, where 810 is being painstakingly restored under the watchful eye of Paul Culshaw. In part two, we'll take you around the workshop where you can hear how the restoration is taking shape. Here in part one, Tony talks us through his ambitions for the project and the fascinating story of a very rare Spitfire and its pilot. We're with Tony Hoskins. We're actually in a cafe at the Hoverports at South Sea, so forgive any extraneous noises. But his big Spitfire project, the AA810, is uh, over on the Isle of Wight, which is why we're here, because we've been travelling down there by hovercraft. Tony, it's great to be with you, and thank you so much for showing us around your workshop. Just explain how the whole AA810 project came about. This is a, a PR4 Spitfire, a photo reconnaissance Spitfire. That's right. Well, it's nice to meet you, gents. Actually, it's been a while we've been talking about this, I think, to, to come over here. But, um, yeah, this kind of all started off because I've been in the industry building aeroplanes for a number of years. And, you know, much of the story that goes with these aeroplanes that get rebuilt is really the story behind it. At the end of the day, it's just a machine. It's a piece of aluminium and steel. Um, what makes these aeroplanes special is the history that's attached to them. And really, that comes from the guys that flew it. So I went out looking for a Spitfire that was going to have in my eyes, the best story that was out there um, that we could tell to the world that people would relate to. And I think we've got it right, because it's really <laughs> captured people and their imagination the world over. So, um, yeah, very pleased with it. But it really kicked off in about 2016, originally, when I set out to try and find uh, an aeroplane that would be uh, able to really tell the story of the RAF, because we were coming up to the 100 years of the RAF in 2018. And, you know, the RAF is obviously a, uh, well, as you know, James, actually, is, uh, you know, made up of many people of many nationalities, and lots of people came together through the war to help uh, fight for the Allied powers. So something that would really actually signify the sacrifices made and also from the nations that came was what was going to be out there. Um, the problem is in 2016 there aren't an awful lot of Spitfires lying around waiting to be found um, and because obviously this was to try and celebrate the RAF it needs to be something that's going to have a wide uh, public appeal. Um, 
as you guys probably well know, you walk down the street and ask somebody the name of an aeroplane, they're going to say Spitfire, Jumbo Jet and Concorde. So um, not going to go dig up Concorde. Uh, Jumbo Jet, it's not really there, not really REF. Um, but Spitfires, everybody knows. So I set out to try and find a Spitfire. Um, the places where they're most likely to be found are the places that many people don't go. Uh, quite a lot of those were fairly punchy at the time, sort of Libya and uh, Africa and Burma and um, lots of weird and wonderful places. But Scandinavia was one that was quite possible uh, and I did a lot of research into it and I found there were a number of wrecks that were still seemingly waiting to be recovered. The, the glory of internet being you can look up registrations of aeroplanes and see if anyone's got them sitting in a in a museum or a shed um, and it was slightly more practical so that's what really set it about and uh, there was many many months of research the weather window in that part of Norway is particularly tight so it gave me very limited time to get out there so effectively there was about a year and a half to two years worth of preliminary work before I actually started to get feet on the ground knowing that this was the aeroplane I needed to try and find um, and then went and found it uh, which was marvellous. But then that brings into the whole aspect of trying to bring it back, which is uh, another story altogether. But, uh, <laughs> and probably one we might not have time for, but that was, I mean, it's been a huge project, but it's developed into a kind of a four-pronged story because we got the story, it's not, it's not a widely told story of, of photo reconnaissance. And we've got the story of the pilot here who was the last person to fly it when it was shot down, Sandy Gunn. Um, just tell us what's so appealing about his story. Well, his story is, in, unfortunately, it's incredibly tragic. So this was a young man who he started life in Octorada. Um, he'd wanted to be an engineer and uh, he'd gone to school. Wasn't the most academically minded. Personally, I don't believe you have to be to be an engineer. You have to be a problem solver to be an engineer. That's my aim. You don't have to be great at maths. Um, but at the time, you needed to be. Um, and he'd started a Heartland and Wolf apprenticeship in the shipyards in Glasgow and uh, ended up going down to Pembroke College in Cambridge to study to try and better his academic skills. And, of course, the clouds of war were forming in 1939, so he elects to sign himself up and go off to war. And um, he seemed to have been really good at navigation. So he ended up in... Um, in Hooton Park, up near sort of Blackpool, Liverpool area, uh, flying um, Anson's, looking for uh, German submarines for the protection of the merchant ships, which obviously involves lots of navigation over water. And when you've only got a compass and a stopwatch, you know, that's not the easiest thing to do. But those were all skills that uh, made his um, aptitude uh, flag up with his commanding officers. And they said, well, we've got this photo reconnaissance unit. Uh, we'd be very much interested in having down there. So he was posted off to that, and of course that was flying Spitfires, but unarmed Spitfires. So they were stripped down of all their weight, there was no guns, there was no radio, um, and they were operating very much on their own. And this is what Sandy did. He, he would go off across to the extremities of the continent in highly modified aeroplanes, um, and the chances of coming back were very slim. You know, life expectancy was very short. Um, doing the research now, about 50% of those that flew uh, didn't return, and a third of those that uh, flew in total um, are still missing in action today. Uh, in fact, one of the guys we think flew AA-810, we think he was the delivery pilot, um, he was finally found in 1997, having been shot down in 1942. So, um, you know, it's tragic stories, but, you know, most people think of Spitfires painted in camouflage with lots of guns and Battle of Britain, and everyone knows about that, but they don't think about the ones that were sitting up at 30,000, 40,000 feet taking photos when, you know, we've all seen with things that are going on uh, at the time of recording <laughs> in, uh, in lands afar that, you know, yeah. we're watching all this footage of drones and things taking, you know, watching what's happening. Well, well, it was just as important back then. 
in the Second World War, knowing what your enemy was doing was vital. And, you know, trying to get hands-on intelligence same day only came from these guys. It's critical to the strategic planning. What was... Obviously, Tony's written a book about about this, which I've read most of, and um, the the photographic reconnaissance unit was based at Benson uh, for for much of his time. Uh, I think he moved up to Wick in the latter stages. Um, But... Well, it's amazing. There's a, there's a blue Spitfire on a stick outside RAF Benson, <laughs> which I think is plastic. But um, it, the, so I know of the, the, the photographic reconnaissance Spitfires because of that. But as you say, not many people do. Because you were based at Benson. I was with your Pumas. Benson, with my Pumas. Yeah. Um, and also in the book, it talks about pubs. He goes to to, um, to have drinks in. I've drunk in all of those pubs <laughs> and a few more. Uh, so it's, it was an incredibly sort of you know heartwarming read, uh, all about Benson during the war. Um, and again, this is the untold story of, of, of these type of Spitfires that, that people don't know anything about. We well, see this is the, the thing that gets it for me is because, as I said, the machine at the end of the day is just a machine. It's the people that make the story. And the fact is, because we're lucky enough to have all these diaries and personal letters and things like that, we can virtually, I don't want to sound corny, but follow in the footsteps of. You know that he got in the car from there, the village is the same, the airfield is the same, the barracks where he stayed is the same, and you go to the pubs, which are the same. And you can sit in the bar and have a drink and going, well, I know that he flew to Stettin on this day, did X, Y and Z, and then came in here for a couple of jars afterwards. And you're going, bar is probably the same. You know, yeah. it's very weird. The only difference is that there's the this... The barmaid's a little bit younger now, I think. Uh, <laughs> Not much. <laughs> but the, the only thing that separates you from that is that time element. It's the same space, it's the same location. And that's what's very strange. And you probably notice... You know, you look at the wreckage, that wreckage is that aeroplane frozen in time at that very moment that it crashed. And that, I find, is a very real thing. You often look at history and you read books and you read stories of this, but touching what is actually history and what's real is very different. And that's why when I came across his story, he was mostly signed up as a single line in a, in a book. So most of the Great Escape books, just listen to him, Sandy Gunn uh, murdered as part of the Great Escape. And that's it, and that's where his story ends. And I thought, isn't it awfully tragic? You've got this young man who had this whole rest of his life and he must have done loads of things, and he's summed up in that one line. And that's basically led to four years, coming up to five years of solid research into this guy's life as to where he was being, what he was done. Um, you know, we, we hope, we're trying to find his girlfriend, so we had a girlfriend at the time, um, and we got a photo of her and we got a first name, and we're working really hard to try and find... Because she could still be alive. You know, she could still be alive now. And, uh, you know, did she ever know that he was murdered as a result? It's difficult to tell. So bringing that people element to it is important. But also all the other guys who flew the same aeroplane, because you guys probably know from talking to a veteran, you want to talk to them about one particular event. You can talk to ten veterans about one event, have ten different stories. (laughs) They're all correct, but if you try and sum that up through that, it's very difficult. I thought I'd flip it the other way and say, let's find an item or an object that has stories attached to it. So we can say, here's the story, here's the item, and this is what these other guys did. And it's all summed up in this piece of aluminium that's now sat on a mountain, all crumbled and crunched. But look at what it did, and look at what the people did who were in it. And then that brings out all real life, and it puts a real different aspect onto it. And because we've got pre-war racing drivers and we've got a guy who wins the Grand National we've got a conscientious objector who was there when Hess was captured and we've got you know Sandy who was this uh, young apprentice who was wanting to do something with his life you know it brings home the reality of it and they'd all flown this particular Spitfire yeah they'd all flown this one Spitfire and there's still there's about four or five non-operational trips because we've we've also got 
problem with the PRU is it's very clandestine. The records are sparse at best. Um, so you record all the operational missions because obviously they had to be logged because you were taking photos that are equivalent to a time and a date and a location. But all the non-operational stuff was kept so quiet. So I've got the aeroplane flying from one airfield and landing at that airfield, and then the next day it's flying from another airfield. And you're going, well... How did it get there? Yeah, how did it take there? <laughs> and then we've got one particular time, we've got one week, in, I think, October 1941 where a guy called R.B. Jones, who was basically the scientist, engineer, mad boffin who was behind much of the photo reconnaissance, turned up at RAF Benson um, for two days. And 810 flew from Mount Farm, which was the satellite down the road, landed at Benson with one guy on at the same time that R.B. Jones was there. It then flew all the way to Scotland and then it carried out four non-operational trips, all from Scotland, with the same pilot, and then it flew all the way back, and RV Jones came back to Benson to meet the aeroplane when it came back. And the only thing we can think of is this was just before the Würzburg mission to go and capture that famous photo of the radar on the cliffs. And I'm trying very hard now to work because I think, because they had to fly so fast to get that, I'm wondering if they had to develop different shutter equipment for the cameras. And I'm wondering if RV Jones, who was the guy who was basically planning that, that mission, wanted a test aeroplane to test this new equipment, because why else would you send a reconnaissance Spitfire to northern Scotland yeah. to not fly operationally, mm. but carry out all these test flights for an hour or two at a time, and then you come back to be met by the scientists again? But unfortunately, the information is still on the, on the withheld list. I don't know. But it could be that it was used as development. And this is what then answers you open one door, yeah. and it opens more questions yeah. and things like that. And that's only come because we found the logbooks of one of the guys who flew it. And then, you know, that then becomes this research. and research i love research as you guys have probably worked out but the further we get from the events of the war the more difficult it comes because with every day that passes some more information is lost a veteran is lost there's so much research we've done with our monument campaign we found three or four guys have all passed away in the last 10 months that we didn't even knew existed until two weeks ago but then there were, any of these people could have helped answer we're very fortunate we've got three veterans alive today uh, who help an awful lot with some of the background stuff like you know did you have a a dedicated team for your cameras for per aeroplane? Was it per pilot? What was this? What was data like? You know, what was it like? Did you get your Edinburgh break in the, in the morning or did you get that when you came back if you're on an early trip? None of it's written down anywhere, but we're trying to collate all that now so we know the story. Did, did pilots like Sandy Gunn volunteer to be on the photographic reconnaissance unit? Was it something they wanted to go on or would they have rather been fighting battles. You see, I've had two different answers to this. Sandy doesn't allude to it in his letters, um, and his main diary only starts when he arrives at Benson. Um, I've spoken to one veteran who laughed when I said, did you volunteer? He said, <laughs> he said I was certainly volunteered. But then I have spoken to another veteran who did certainly volunteer. That They basically walked into the mess and said, who wants to go and do this? And they said, what's it about? And they went, well, I don't know. Um, and he went off and did it anyway. Um, so yeah, it's a very difficult thing. What I do know for sure is most of these guys have said that the Spitfire in particular saved their lives for what they were doing. You know, it was super fast, they didn't have guns, they couldn't protect themselves, and they needed something that was quick and manoeuvrable and could outrun. I mean, uh, one of our veterans, he flew mosquitoes, and he had a very powerful mosquito at the end of the war, because a lot of development work was done with the reconnaissance guys. And he said he was doing one trip, uh, and he saw a Focke-Wulf 190 come up, 
and start to go for him and he could just open the taps through all the boost and just pull away from it he said and that really saved his life on that aspect but most of the Spitfire guys went we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the Spitfire in particular in terms of Sandy Gunn on that fateful day he was uh, out there to photograph the the Tirpitz the German battleship that's right I mean the Tirpitz was a bit of a problem Um, if you think at that particular time in the war we were very much on the back foot so whilst we'd won the Battle of Britain effectively the Germans had air superiority from everywhere south and east of the of the channel really um, so we were very much on the offensive sorry we were very much on the defensive um, offensive hadn't really started but we still needed to know what was going on and the convoys the convoys were still being hit quite hard as well at that that's point. right but if you think we, we were, everything was kicking off in the Mediterranean um, obviously Germans had just started their operations against Russia so we needed stuff going to Russia but equally we needed stuff coming from Russia so we had the Arctic convoys and of course we had the Atlantic convoys as well so your Royal Navy was split between um, the Mediterranean and everything going off down there, the North Sea and the North Atlantic. So um, the fact that you're about to put probably one of the most dangerous battleships out amongst the Arctic convoys left everyone very worried. And, of course, the weather at the end of 1941, beginning of 42, was appalling. Um, so the Tirpitz had been in, uh, in for refit. And... Uh, it was spied by the PRU as being there, and then a few weeks later, when they could get back over it again, it was gone. And of course, that, that worries quite a few people, including <laughs> Churchill. So he basically gave direct orders for a flight of uh, PRU aeroplanes to be dispatched to Wick. And there were five aeroplanes and five pilots that were sent uh, up there, one of which was 810, and of course, one of which we know is Sandy Gun. Um, and they were dispatched up there to find Tirpitz on a three month um, secondment. And at the end of it, uh, only two of them came home. Um, one of those because he had been sent off to training and everyone else was killed because it was unfortunately tragic I mean you'll appreciate if you're coming back from Trondheim to hit Wick um, I believe it's something like 7 degrees off track and you'll either miss so you'll either go all the way down the North Sea and never see the UK or you go straight out into the Atlantic so when you're doing that by dead reckoning with poor Met um, you can see why the attrition rate was huge absolutely huge so for Sandy, he found the Tirpitz, he photographed it and was on his way home when he was then hit by, by two Messerschmitts. That's right, yeah. I mean, we have photos. This is a wonderful thing, <laughs> talking about capturing things in time. We have photos taken from the aeroplane from 810 because, of course, they were developed and they were held in an archive in Scotland. And equally, we have some of Sandy's ones from his missions taken in other aeroplanes. We've got some beautiful photos of the Tirpitz um, in sea trials uh, in Tromsfjord. And um, it's really bizarre because you're looking at something that actually happened and is actually there. Um, but, yeah, that's right. He'd managed to find Tirpitz. He'd had a couple of engine issues a few flights before. And he records in his diary that the engine had started running particularly rough. Merlin 45 was not a great engine when it first came into service. Um, I can certainly assure you now the condition of the Merlin, <laughs> now we pulled it off the mountain, is not one that would run again. Um, but yes, basically the, um, uh, he was working out whether he was going to go to Sweden and whether he'd risk the uh, North Sea crossing, because you're certainly at that time, you know, March 1942, you're dead within minutes of being in the water. Um, so, you know, was he going to make it or not? And the German combat report shows that he was basically circling, working out what to do, which you'd never normally do in the combat area. But in fairness to Sandy, um, the Luftwaffe hadn't been present until two days before. Um, it was not noted and no interception had been made by the Luftwaffe the day before when 810 was flying, although it had taken um, hits from Tirpitz anti-aircraft fire with Fane on it. And... Um, yeah, so they hadn't been intercepted because actually 810 is the first Spitfire to be shot down in Norway. 
Um, so it was uh, there hadn't been any losses in Norway since the campaign in 1940 when we pulled out of there. Um, so it was relatively unknown. So you would have thought he was fairly safe. Um, and there's a sad line in his diary that says that you know everyone's very punchy about getting shot down, but you know if you're not concentrating, that's the only time you're going to be lost. And of course he wasn't concentrating and he was lost. And uh, yeah, so he got bounced and he eventually bailed out of the aeroplane um, when the tail came off uh, and it was on fire and he parachuted down. He was he was quite badly burnt, um, but he was helped off the mountain by some young children. Um, and uh, he ended up being taken prisoner of war. And you know the, the town and the community now is very much the same as it was then. You can go to the house where he stayed, which was the commandant's house, and I've met people from the village who were school children at the time. There's one guy, very strange, who was sitting on the steps of the house, which was the former commandant's house, and this guy came up and he said, yeah, um, you know, I saw Sandy Gunn at the time. He was sat here on this bench, and there was a German there and a German there, and they were all having a cigarette, and you're going... <laughs> Oh, this is a bit too close for comfort. It really is. It's really strange. Um, but that's what's been really nice about it. Um, then, of course, he goes off to the prison camp and he ends up um, prisoner of war. He was number five to arrive in the brand new camp that was Stalagluf III. Um, and then, yeah, everybody knows the great escape story from there on. Um, and it's very special to have what is basically the only aeroplane that relates to anybody in the great escape. And the end result for him was not a good one. No, absolutely not, unfortunately. So he was part of the tunnelling team, so he was able to go into the, the draw, basically, to be one of the 200 to go out. Um, he wasn't in the first draw, which was those who speak German. He didn't speak any languages, um, so he couldn't risk travelling in trains. He did obviously get out. He was the 68th out of the tunnel, and we know 76 got out before uh, the tunnel was discovered. Um, but he had to travel on underneath the trains he felt that was the, obviously the quickest way best you know best way to escape is a prison war bicycle theft that's a really good way of getting long distances um, or train but then obviously you're obviously challenged a lot and you need to have a good command of German and your documents need to stand up to good scrutiny as well um, you sit on the bogies underneath uh, a freight train no one's really going to come and talk to you so this 24 year old and his escape partner Mike Casey basically rode the axles underneath the trains and the train routes at the time from effectively where they were at Stalagluf 3 took you to Berlin before then back up to the northern shipping ports where you could jump a ship to Sweden. Obviously that brought about neutrality. It would often bring about prison as well because of course you're arriving into a country with no documents and whether it's neutral or not, first thing that's going to happen is to be arrested but at least if you're arrested in a neutral country, someone's going to eventually get you to the ambassador at some point point. you can get home from there. Um, sadly, from what we can deduce from people who came to visit his family after the war. Um, we think he was picked up somewhere near Bernal and uh, there's a marshalling yard there. So we suspect he took one freight train, obviously had to then change to another one to carry on up and uh, evidently got challenged and on the way and of course couldn't speak German. So that's where it falls over. Um, he was taken down to Gorlitz, handed over to the Gestapo as we well know. Um, and he was interrogated there because he'd been on the run for about two and a half days. Um, so he left on the night of the 24th and he was picked up uh, on the 27th and um, he was down to uh, Gorlitz by the 28th um, and they called his name on the morning of the 5th. He went off in a, a lorry with four others um, and then never arrived back at the camp and the next thing that was known was about a month and a half later when his ashes turned up at the camp and they said that's what's, that's what's happened to him and uh, that's where he stayed and he's now out in Poznan now uh, still, I've not been there, not through, not through not wanting to go, but just 
I think to retain the respect for the project and the research that you do, whilst he's somebody on paper, um, it's a lot easier to research than going to see where a guy actually rests, and that comes just a bit too close for me at the moment. I will go, um, but not just yet. I, I'm not quite sure how I deal with that when I come to do that. It obviously has become more than just a project. It's, it's clearly quite a, a personal uh, affiliation you have with Sandy and his, maybe his family and his story. Well, it's very weird, yeah, because, I mean, effectively, I grew up very close to Benson as well. So, you know, reading through it all, I mean, my parents used to take me to, um, to Mount Farm, which is still there, and all the old runways are there, and I remember going up and walking up and down, and that's where 810 spent a lot of its time, as well as Benson. And, you know, winding forward sort of 35, 40 years, it's really weird to think that involved with something that's so linked to my hometown and things that I knew about. It's very different when you end up researching somebody who died, you know, 30-something years before you were even born. But because there was so little about him, and I thought, I want to be able to tell this, you know, going to his schools and getting all his school records and seeing his handwriting and everything else on everything that you're doing, you go, this is actually really rather close. You're, you've got the original records there. Think, well, that's what he wrote at the time. The only difference in space is that time thing again. And you go, if that's all that separates this then it's very strange. And then, of course, recovering the aeroplane and going to the places that it was, you're going, well, actually, this is, this is really a bit close. And I think you have to draw a very fine line as to how close you can make it. But when you start meeting family members and all this sort of stuff and you find out more... I was up at his school only recently, and all the school photos they took, they take in the same location as they take today. So we're then doing those like then and now photos. And it's unchanged. You know, the school's been there for 300 years. And you're standing in the same spot going, well, he was actually standing by that post that's still there today. <laughs> oh, this is all a bit weird. Um, so, yeah, it, I suppose you could say it could be actually quite obsessive, but it's also incredibly rewarding at the same time. This is a guy that was largely forgotten, and now we have his aeroplane under rebuild, his name's known through all of the national press and everything that we do. You guys are here because of him and that project, and equally, we've now got our great schools endeavour that we do in his name um, that's helping all these hundreds of thousands of kids going forward. So... He's basically not forgotten anymore, and, and I think that's and really nice. Potentially a wider memorial to the PRU uh, upcoming, hopefully. Well, that's it. I mean, so one of the things that came about when I first announced it, we broke it in a newspaper, and I thought, okay, we'll see how this goes. And my phone exploded for about four days back in 2018. We hadn't even started to rebuild the aeroplane, and there was just people contacting me from all over the world, and. I was getting lots of people then emailing, going, oh, my father, grandfather, great uncle, etc. he did that. Do you have any information on him? Or we'd have people saying, oh, my father, grandfather did that. Um, I've got loads of information. Are you interested? Because no one's asked about it before. And then it only took about three or four months to realise that not a lot of people knew about what they did. No one really thought we sent people off unarmed and defenceless to go and fight the war. And, of course, with everything now, with the military and what they're doing, and spies in the skies and satellites and all that sort of stuff, it's very relevant even to today. And I think that really what's struck home. And I said, well, you know, how many people did this? And are they commemorated anywhere? And it turned out there wasn't even a role of honour for any of the units. It's just so clandestine. So I started now four years ago to sit down with every single operational record book and every single war diary for all of the units that were involved with this and started writing down names. And obviously you often get a Sergeant Smith or a Flight Officer Jones or something <laughs> like that. Um, it's taken four years. I'm now at uh, 1,498 names. 
um, of which I've done the personal research on just over 1,100 of those uh, to find out where they were born, what happened to them. And it, some of it's awfully depressing. I mean, I had one young guy, he was 21. Uh, he joined the PRU in March 1945, so not long before the end of victory in Europe. Um, first flight, um, he uh, completed successfully. Second flight was down to the south of France. Uh, he was intercepted by two Messerschmitt 163 jet fighters, um, which shot most of the back end of the Mosquito off. He dived it vertically. Um, the 163 stayed with him. He pulled out at the bottom. They knocked out the right-hand engine on the Mosquito before they ran out of steam. So he carried on at low level until he was attacked by a Messerschmitt 109 who killed the navigator next to him. So he then went one engine into cloud to then fly back through France because obviously the Allies were advancing through France to try and get to a point where he could put the aeroplane down, came out of cloud, took flak, which blew out the, uh, most of the stuff in the cell on the right-hand side, got to Lille, put it down at Lille, tyre burst, the thing careers off the runway, etc., etc. but they recover the film out of it. He's given the instantaneous DFC. They send him home. Two days later, he's killed on takeoff out of Benson. So he survived three flights, one of which he got the DOC. And there are so many stories like that. And he'd survived, you know, right at the end of the war. And there's other guys that we've had who flew in Bomber Command, you know, time and time again, they're then flying a desk. They don't want to be flying a desk. And uh, they're basically put onto the PRU because they want to go operational again. Three flights later, they're dead. And it's really sad. It's really tragic. And then there's, of course, the guys coming back from the Far East. There was four or five guys that were killed just ferrying aeroplanes home at the end of the war. From it. Well, they don't unfortunately count as wartime casualties. They still get Commonwealth war graves. But, you know, all of these stories are missing. So I've kind of made it the mission to try and do that. And the hope is, is that we'll be able to put a national memorial up in London to not only the guys who collected the intelligence, but also the girls who interpreted the intelligence. Because photographs are useless unless someone can interpret it. That was all Medlam, wasn't it? That was, yeah, largely yeah. Medlam. Um, there was a place in Algiers as well. Because we, we've got to remember the photo reconnaissance was across all theatres of war. The Americans also, they copied a lot and they ended up with their seventh photographic reconnaissance group doing similar stuff. Um, but you get all these names. So, I mean, um, Helena Bonham Carter's aunt was a photographic interpreter. Um, Churchill's daughter was a photographic interpreter. Um, Oh, God, I'm trying to think of his name. Oh, Dirk Bogart. Dirk Bogart was a photographic interpreter at RAF Medmenham. So, you know, there's all these names and histories and things that come in from the past. But, you know, anyone who sees Operation Crossbow knows about how important reconnaissance was to finding Pinamunda, the V1, the V2 threat, dam busters. Everyone's seen the pictures of the dams and the before and after. But then these guys were also collecting meteorological information and they were, you know, seeing what was going on, picking up on other things. There was so much that came out, out of this that was then used for... And that's why there's 26 million photos still in store, of which NCAP up in Edinburgh, they've only digitised the first uh, 1.7 million. <laughs> only. Only. But they've got, you know, you've got decades... Of, of work to go to digitise it and that information is still used today you want to go and build a new shopping centre or a service station in Germany you end up contacting NCAP to look for the photographic records of that area to see what was there at the time if you go on Google Earth now and you look at a lot of these photos some of it from the Luftwaffe archive but most of it is because the guys in the PRU had to train over the UK so they were taking aerial photos of the UK and that's why you can wind the timeline yeah, back to see your house in the war fascinating yeah. yeah so what fascinating thing you have to do that is still useful today for planning and particular things to see what was there on earthworks and all the study that goes on. Information that's still useful 80 years on, that's pretty bloody special in my eyes. <laughs> Tony, you also mentioned the, the STEM side of this whole project, getting young people involved in engineering. And 
I guess, specifically aeronautical engineering, or is it, is it wider than that? Yeah, we, we focus on aeronautical because there's so many different strands. If you think about it, you've got material science, you've got actually physical building of things, you've got alternative fuels, you've got medical. Obviously, if you're putting lots of passengers in a pressurised tin for, what's the longest flight now, 23 hours, something like that? Something dreadful like that, yes. Yeah, something yeah. dreadful like that, right? So you've got to learn how the human body works. So this is all engineering. So whilst we can promote engineering, um, doing it through aviation gives you all these different facets that wouldn't normally come up and engineering is big you know kids love engineering despite what people say we, we're getting packed out when we go into our schools presentations all around the uk but also digitally you know we supply nearly a third of all secondary schools in the uk with three is it 50 50 inches girls and boys so no it's more girls is it really it's more girls so so typically depending on the role within aerospace between six and twelve percent are female at the moment i think our digital output when i last did it was 58 percent female go to the website uh, of the under 24 age um, and then physically in our presentations i think we're 44 percent female attendants who come along so it's getting the hook and getting the story and getting them interested but there's a lot of places I've done years of working with charities and trying to help youngsters um, and the problem is they all do the same thing which is wrong unfortunately they're all aiming at those that have already decided what they want to do and they don't follow up when opportunities are offered to the ones that want to do something and they don't get it for whatever reason it's never followed up with and that's where you're losing so many people because there's so much doubt with a lot of these young people as to whether they're capable what you actually need to aim at is you need to aim at the ones that are considering it and thinking about it and go home to mum and dad and go, mum, mum, dad, 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 I want to do this, this, this and this. And then they go, oh my God, what's that going to cost and how long is that going to take and what if it goes wrong and all that sort of thing. That's the point that you, you lose young people if you can't answer it because everything that is set up is set up on the basis of you already knowing where you're going. So we appeal to the kids and we aim everything it's a bit deeper than that, because I'm not going to give all the secrets away of why we've become popular, but the, the idea is we aim material specifically at those that are still unsure or are questioning, because that's where the problem lies. You catch them young enough and early enough whilst they're still in that mindset, because there's certain ages where they're too involved with exams, they just can't get in. So we start at 10, and we have phase programmes. We have 10 to 12, 13 to 14, and 15 to 18, and then 18 and beyond. So we can pick them up and we scale it as we go through, and they get different opportunities depending on what they want. And it's all done for free. We get our help and support from industry, be it financial or be it um, in services and kind. But you know, we want to offer opportunities. We do a brilliant one with um, flying training school at Killington Airport where we take kids that have never been to an airport before and we sit them down, we give them a mock pilot aptitude test because they're always worried about their exams. We basically say, if you know your three times table and you work out an area of a triangle, you can be a pilot. Yeah. And uh, they don't get that. It's not actually that easy, to be honest. Um, what, no, to be a pilot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony, how does this all time with 810? How, how does the story of 810 fit into this? Or, or doesn't it necessarily? Or is that, is that the peg? It certainly does. So Sandy Gunn was an apprentice himself. We're very keen on ensuring that youngsters get the opportunities that basically Sandy's generation missed out on. You know, they gave their time, they gave their lives, they gave their futures for betterment of the country. Well, we offer those opportunities that was missed by them off to kids of today. Now, the idea being is that um, we want to try and uh, develop young people as best we can we can do that several ways it's either by providing them with information that there's so much out there you know if you go and look at this it, but a lot of it's to try and sell you something or get you onto a particular thing we're unbiased we're not trying to sell you anything at all so we can scope through it and say look actually when you cut it down this is what's important this is less important look at this we're not going to do the work for them 
you know, because that's not going to get them anywhere to just be given yeah. things. But we try and direct them in the right location and they can come to us and ask thereafter. So that's the information side of it. Then there's the opportunity side of it because we partner with all these different companies. So we partner with like GKN Aerospace, absolutely superb. We're working with Talis. We're working with a number of airline operators as well um, and, you know, manufacturers all over, including airframe assemblies uh, and Megit, Parker Megit up in Coventry as well. Um, and we try and develop opportunities for kids outside of those companies, but also the apprentices that are inside those companies, because it's often really good to learn from technology and past. Why reinvent the wheel? But if they can look at particularly legacy products, and we've concentrated mainly on companies that have a legacy link to Spitfire and its design and manufacture, and we basically say, look, this is what your company made before. This is how it's developed. You know what you make today. Look at the path of how this came. So it develops their own internal apprenticeship schemes, and at the same time, we can then gear up those outside of the project to say, well, would you consider apprenticeship schemes in this, or would you consider going to this? And that's why we offer like an engineering workshop, so we take kids for a couple of days and we teach them how to make bits of Spitfire. They don't actually go into the Spitfire, they take those bits away, and I'm working really hard now to try and get, uh, we're working with an education establishment to try and get that accredited, and eventually my hope is that I can make that part of the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, because then it opens up the scouting movement and the rest of the air cadet movement so we can then get even to more youngsters and say you come and do this with us it will count towards that and it can all count and they go on that cv at the end of the day when they're you know they've got the same qualifications as the other 20 people sat outside the door but they need something that's going to stand out and make them more employable we say we've offered you this we've helped with this it feels great from our point to be able to do it um, but then it also helps the project because a lot of those youngsters are getting involved, particularly within the apprenticeship schemes, on remanufacturing, overhauling, researching. You know, we've got some great people up in Luton, at GKN in Luton, who are working on the reconnaissance blisters. Now, those are things that have not been made since the war. A lot of the information is missing. We have two drawings now. We've just managed to find a second one only in the last week. Um, and that information has gone to them. But because no one's made it, they're now putting that into wind tunnels and 3D modelling it and everything else to see what effect that's going to have if we put this onto the aeroplane. And that becomes a great real-world exercise for these 17, 18-year-olds. If a school or a company wants to get on board with you, can they come straight to you? Is there a, how, would they, how would they do that? So we've got two websites ready. We've got the main historical one, which is uh, spitfireaa810.co.uk. Um, I've got to admit, I'm... I actually haven't even put on there that we're restoring the aeroplane. There is a news feed on it, but I've got to create a restoration page. Um, but that's very much the historical ones. So that's very much based on those that want to know the history uh, and see what we're doing on a day-to-day. -day. And then we have uh, the Aerospace Careers Programme one, which is acp-aa810.co.uk. And that details everything we do from schools presentations to our roadshow that goes round, to our engineering workshops, to our online support to schools. And then we have a big resources section. So we have lots of um, uh, sort of uh, presentation material uh, and guidebooks and things across in, you know, everything from airline pilot, military pilot. Um, we're doing ones for air traffic control. We've got um, air sea rescue. We've got helicopter rescues and lots of things, model making, uh, you know, anything that you can imagine within the careers. But we're now also developing our resources for teachers because we're going to get the teachers on board and the schools on board to push it. So we're creating key stage three and key stage four teaching material and that covers like the roles of the poles in photo reconnaissance and some other historical stuff composites we're having a new composites one put together because composites the future but of course the mosquito really was one of the earliest composites going because it was made of wood and the result of that is, is that we put all this together to try and help the teaching side and then we have a careers portal which will feature 90 
90 different careers uh, through the aerospace industry, which are available for young people to go into. And it cuts through all the rubbish. It basically says, this is what it's going to cost you to train. This is whether they'll pay for it, whether you've got to pay for it. This is what you're expecting to learn at the end of it. And here's the pros and cons. It's great from this aspect, but it's rubbish from that aspect because you don't want to gold plate something because if you then go and have a youngster who gets really excited about a job and then you go and introduce them to someone who goes, oh, it's not like that, mate, you know, it's over, then you've just deflated that and you've lost it. So we have to paint the real-world exercise and that's how we work with companies for it, but we're always willing to work with companies. They can get hold of us any way they want. People, schools, anybody who wants to come forward, they just have to email us and contact us on the website and we get in touch and do all the work from there and it doesn't cost them a penny. Uh, the uptake has been huge. And before we get thrown out of the cafe, we're about to close down. A couple of other things we must cover with you. For all these valiant efforts of yours, you've actually been granted the freedom of the City of London, <laughs> which uh, is hugely impressive. It is. It's, it's very flattering, actually. I, I don't do this for any betterment of anything. I mean, I'm, I'm in a lucky position. I don't have to. You know, I run my own companies. I'm not looking at getting employment anywhere. Uh, I think you only see one in entry on my LinkedIn anyway. It's not, it's not exciting me, but it was really nice for all the work that's gone in to just receive a little bit of recognition for what it was. Not that that's why I do it, but it's a... Um, it was a nice ceremony. It was nice to have. It looks good on the wall. Many congratulations. It does entitle you, I believe, to drive sheep across London Bridge, which I, we know someone who could probably help you with some sheep. I can help you out, Tony. Just come to me. We live very close to each other. We do, actually. Yeah, we, we, we can make that happen. <laughs> and one other quick thing, Tony. Many people will know you, as we do, from your Chitty Chitty Bang Bang exploits with David Williams, oh, which made for a great programme. <laughs> Just fill us in on, on the background to all of that. And I can't remember, did you actually get it going in the end or was it a bit of a sort of, became more of a kind of drone rather than a proper flying Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Uh, so I've got to say, if anyone is thinking of making a flying car, um, it is possible. Just don't do it because it's an awful lot of work, um, particularly if you're trying to make it electric and green. Um, but no, it was it it was a lovely experience that was very different to how it came across on TV for obvious editorial reasons to make people watch to the end. Um, but I got to say, it was great fun building uh, a replica car. It was great fun driving it. Um, we got it flying within the the realities of the law and what we're allowed to do in the UK. We did want to do it in Germany where we could have actually have manned it. That would have been fabulous. But um, with COVID and everything else going on in the world, that became cost prohibitive. So within the constraints of trying to do it in a global pandemic um, to budget uh, on you know a fraction of the budget that Boeing and Airbus have for their flying cars, um, there's a lot of pride came from it. Um, I wouldn't do it again. But now that it's over, I, I look back on it fondly <laughs> But no, no more flying cars, no. Gerard, have you had a couple of questions you wanted to ask, which we wouldn't allow you to ask at the time, in case yes, you... I think can you remember them? Uh, no, not really. Uh, Tony, I think mine were relating to um, how you funded getting uh, 810 off the mountain. OK. Um, well, that's actually quite simple. I mean, at the time, I mean, we probably all remember back to... 2018 when global air travel was actually quite cheap um, you know most of it is a time commitment you know sitting in the public record office for three months doesn't cost you anything other than your time very fortunate in that running the businesses that I do I'm able to do that um, and when it actually came to getting legs on the ground yes you know costs go up I dare say 
I received an awful lot of help from the Norwegians. There was, it was great to do it in the, in the school holidays because there was lots of youngsters that wanted to get involved. Obviously, we had to bring a team across. We had to mobilise a team. I didn't have the equipment to go and recover a Spitfire that's most of the way up a mountain that you can't actually get a wheeled vehicle to. Um, but dare I say, actually, for any of those who have been to Norway, obviously the cost of food, accommodation and... and uh, I wasn't going to quite say alcohol, but refreshments. Um, it's very difficult to ask people to work 13, 14 hours a day labouring, digging the Spitfire out the ground and only buy them one pint at night. So actually, of the cost that it was, it did all come out of my pocket. Um, but I would say probably 45 to 50% of the cost was actually looking after the, the rest of the team on the ground in Norway than it was the actual recovery and the bringing the aeroplane home. And in the end, I drove it back in the van on my own because I thought if I have to sleep in the van to get it through customs, then I will. But thankfully, you know, we managed to get all that worked out with the Norwegian authorities and it, it went fairly smoothly. So three days back from the Arctic Circle was enough. Um, and uh, it was a great relief to get it back into the UK. But uh, yeah, it was, an, it was a nice thing to do and it's just grown from there. So I see that as an investment made that um, it, it has paid off thousand times over and I think we're all incredibly grateful and actually sort of by association rather proud of you for doing it because it's an, it's an amazing <laughs> well it is it's an incredible story yeah. uh, and it's it's got so much more to run yes. in all of the formats of the stem and the memorial and sandy and and the, the, the aircraft itself so i think it's going to be a really exciting 18 24 months to see where it goes. Oh, absolutely. And then let's not forget, you know, once it's done, we'll fly the aeroplane back to Norway. Um, all, I mean, there are 21 different nationalities that flew in the PRU. I've gone to most of their embassies or high commissions, and already the, um, the Belgians want us to land in Belgium with the aeroplane where they want to do a ceremony, and then they're giving us an F-16 um, <laughs> wingman, effectively, to fly us across and drop us off with the Dutch, who then want to do something very similar. Uh, and I'm meeting the Norwegian embassy next week, I think, or the week after. Oh, I don't even know what day of the week it is today. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they're all very keen. But, yeah, taking the aeroplane back is superb. The, the New Zealanders want it down in New Zealand for Wanaka. Um, the Americans want it at Oshkosh. Um, so I'm looking at taking it to Wanaka and then shipping it to probably Seattle, putting it across, and then doing a Cross America trip with it. Because, of course, Steve McQueen, great escape. They love it out there. Um, and... Uh, We'll, we'll take the aeroplane across the States and bring it back. So the, the first two, three years of operating are absolutely full. And then what I look forward to is what we can do next with it because, you know, we've got all the engagement with the youngsters. And then, you know, we're commemorating Sandy because it's Sandy's aeroplane, but so many other people are lost. So everyone talks of the pink Spitfires. We haven't seen a pink Spitfire for years. Uh, well, we'll repaint it and commemorate that. And hopefully on rotation, just like the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, we'll commemorate certain people in, in certain things thereafter and keep it alive and vibrant and go from there. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice and it's fulfilling. And that's why I enjoy doing it. Brilliant, Tony. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to see inside the workshop and just hear the whole story. Thank you. What a story, and our huge thanks to Tony Hoskins. Do visit the project's website, www.spitfireaa810.co.uk, to learn more and to find out how you can support it and help fund the National Monument to the PRU. In part two, we'll take you around the workshops of airframe assemblies on the Isle of Wight, where they're restoring 810, as well as a number of other wonderful historic aircraft.